In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars, one oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. Joining me today is my noteworthy co-host, Patrick Pister. Hey, Mark. How you doing? Awesome, Patrick. Patrick, what episode is this? Yeah, Mark, this is episode number 43. And Patrick, <laughs> you know what else we have that's new? Uh, a return guest. Besides return guests, <laughs> which, which actually we'll get to that in a minute. We also have our own internet radio station. Now. That's right. We do have our own internet radio station now. Yeah. So if you want to listen to this live 24-7 a day, Patrick put a link in the show notes. It's actually really cool. I don't listen to it, Patrick, because I'm tired of hearing myself talk. But. I listen to it 24 hours a day. I cannot get enough of myself. <laughs> <laughs> and so, Patrick, we have our first ever returning guest. We do. We are here at Dooley and Tackerberry's facility with uh, Dennis is returning. Thank you, Dennis. You're welcome. And you've got a guest with us today. You've, who do you have with us? Jason. <laughs> <laughs> I know who he is. I was asking Dennis to introduce him. <laughs> oh, we've got Jason Hansen. He's the vice president of sales for Dooley Tackerberry. Appreciate you guys having me. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Dennis, we, we had you on the podcast a while back as a guest, and at the very end of the podcast, you mentioned something called fire, fire safety specifically. And I looked at Patrick and go, we have to get them back on because we've never touched that. And I personally don't know much of anything other than the, the force fire extinguisher training I was, had to do to all be able to go offshore. <laughs> so when, you, when I say fire safety, from, from Dooley Tackleberry's point of view, what is that? Well, basically, it, it really starts, especially for this company, from uh, uh, the basis of when any type of an operation is being conceptualized, you know, whether it's uh, onshore drilling, uh, onshore production, or offshore, when we start to uh, envision having any type of hydrocarbons or any kind of flammables, actually, because that, especially if you get into accommodation modules and things like that, Dooley Tackerberry is the kind of company that will sit down and work with a client, even at a conceptual stage. And during that conceptual stage, we'll start to look at the th- sort of things that that client needs to consider. And, and let me give you a, a couple of really quick examples of that. You know, if, if it's a, a production facility, then, you know, we will try to help them understand how they can go about choosing the proper type of protection, choosing the proper type of detection, help them understand what kind of products could pose a, a risk to employees and to the environment, uh, help them understand how they can go about detecting those type of things, uh, how they can go about alarming, how they can ensure proper egress, how they can design for response, whether it's from a city like the city of Houston, for example, on a ship channel. Uh, it could be the U.S. Coast Guard if it's uh, actually at a terminal. So all of those things, when a client first starts to think about the, the kind of facility they want, could be a storage terminal, for example, could be a chemical plant, refinery, whatever it is. When they first start to think about that, the, the value that a company like ours brings is that we can actually sit down with them and help them understand from many, many years of experience some of the things that they need to consider. And doing that, then that, that 
basically plants the seeds so that as they start this conceptual development and they go into the front end engineering design packages for feed is, is the acronym for that. When they go into that, they already have an understanding of some of the things that they may need to consider. A real quick example and, and that I can give you, for example, is uh, ethylene oxide. Let's say that uh, you know a company says, well, you know, we think that uh, ethylene oxide is a product that five, ten years from now is going to really be. We want to be on the leading edge of the production of that because we think that's going to be an up and coming commodity. Uh, we could sit down with them and help them understand what some of the risks are that are inherent with ethylene oxide, and by doing that at the very early stages, it enables them to do a much better job of trying to forecast. One, the kind of company they want to do their feed and their detailed design. It also helps them develop a basis for an estimate. You know, that's one of the biggest problems. We talked about that the, the last time, as a matter of fact, we had a conversation, that because projects are so prone to failure, you know, as you know some 70% or more do, in fact, fail in some manner, budgets are one of the most difficult things to predict. And many times that's because they get pretty far down the line in the whole process without really understanding the full impact of some of the things that they might uh, intend to produce. So we get back to kind of, to me, Patrick, it comes across as literally, if you want to think of protecting your people and your assets from threat of fire, it's literally cradle to grave, right? So you're really looking at detecting it. You're looking at uh, whatever you need to do to take control, whether you're suppressing that fire or whatever, you're looking to help get people out, looking to make sure they have the right PPE. So it's literally, like, literally from to me, like cradle-to-grave fire protection. It definitely is. As a matter of fact, uh, that's, that's in a way, that's a pretty appropriate term. But, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, if, if it isn't recognized up front, and if it's not, again, as I said, not just from a budgetary perspective, but from a technical perspective, if, if that client doesn't understand some of the things that are inherent with that particular type of process, and again, it can be storage terminals, it can be uh, transportation, uh, and that's onshore and offshore. Uh, for example, there was an incident that occurred in Houston many years ago, back in the 80s, with an ammonia tank truck. And that ammonia tank truck had a wreck, uh, ruptured the tank. Uh, there were some five people, as I recall, that actually died from that ammonia spill. There never should have been a situation where a truck carrying 8,000 gallons of ammonia should have been on, on that freeway where something like that could happen. So that carrier and that producer of that ammonia should have known back in the very beginning that there were certain hazards that they should have recognized and planned for. And one of them is you just simply don't take a cargo like that into a, a densely populated area. Yeah, so we had, we're very lucky. They went and had lunch at actually <laughs> fantastic Italian food. <laughs> I almost want to get a plug for the restaurant on the show. It was so good. Um, and But we came back and we had a tour of your facility. And the thing that I think is, is amazing is that y'all own – Y'all own the process literally from the beginning to the end. So not only do you do the engineering, even before you get to the engineering, you can help your clients or I guess your prospective clients figure out what they need to do and probably as importantly what they don't need to do. Then you do the engineering. Then you actually do the manufacturing. And, and so it's it's yours. It's your project, that system, that detection equipment, whatever. So Dooley Tackleberry is the owner of the entire system from one end to the other, which means you control the quality of everything y'all do. And at the same time, your client has one company to interface with 
It's, that's uh, obviously that's one of the advantages that we do bring someone like myself with the years of experience and I think as we talked earlier I was a technical director for process safety and fire protection for a major uh, ENC so from a technical perspective we've got both the experience and technical expertise and as Tom brought out in our tour the idea of having one company that can take it literally from cradle to grave means that there's not this finger pointing because something doesn't work we've got the full facilities to gave well tom was very clear about that there's there's one direction that finger's going to point it's squarely (laughs) back at you if you've got it from the every every stage of the process absolutely right and and you know that's one of the things that obviously as as i'm sure jason can elaborate on is that's that's one of the things that we like to sell is the fact that you know we we can sit down with a client at the very beginning of a conceptual idea that they've got and work with them at whatever engineering companies they decide they want to to use all the way through even to the final installation and testing, acceptance testing. Absolutely. You know, Dooley Tackle Bay, our mission statement is protecting lives, guarding investments. And uh, we we pride ourselves in, in working A to Z from the fire safety, gas detection, smoke alarms, you name it. Um, you know, we want to work with the end users, the owners, the clients. We want to ensure that the uh, engineering firms understand both the applications that we're discussing and also the expectations of those end users because we manage those relationships at both ends and uh and what we have the unique ability to be a turnkey supplier in that we can be involved as early as the uh hazardous analysis we can follow that through with the engineering detailed design manufacturing and also one of our newest initiatives is installation so we will 100 percent test function, work through any details we have once we get to a site level and, and ensure that we're performing to that specification and what that uh, end user ultimately wanted, again, to uh, protect lives and guard investments. Yeah, it was great when you gave us a tour and you, you, you pointed at a brass elbow and you go, we get these in as raw forgings and we machine it ourselves. And I stopped and I asked you, I said, you actually get the raw forgings in and machine it yourself? And you go, yeah. And so I asked you why, and you said quality, right? Because the ones you were getting before had an unacceptable failure rate, so you decided to just do it yourself, and that way you got the quality that you needed. I mean, that's that's a beautiful thing. That's absolutely correct. We found uh, many, many years ago the more of the facets of a given process, project, you know, project we're working on, if we can control as many of those facets uh, internally, that uh, you know, we, we produce a better product on the back end that's uh, going to perform the way we expect it to. Yeah, and you know, for our audience that listen, I think in fire suppression or fire protection, we're not talking about a couple of, of fire extinguishers. Here. How many gallons per minute was that pump skid unit? That was crazy. That was that was actually a redundant system, but the uh, a single pump was rated at five thousand GPM. So five thousand gallons per minute. This is the backup system, right? <laughs> so I mean, you're talking about protecting major installation, acres and acres of refinery or, or ethylene crackers or the entire structure offshore or you know pipeline compressor stations. I mean, this is this is big time. Absolutely. This this covers the gamut of the oil and gas, upstream, downstream, midstream. Uh, we're protecting the entire uh, facility, assets, uh, both process, you know, admin, you know, anything to protect lives within that facility. 
And Patrick, one of the things I, I found that was really fascinating is I don't know if you've noticed this, but when we walked through, do you notice how clean and organized? Absolutely, that was, was the first thing I noticed how clean the facility was. That's always a sign of quality work when your workers, because this is not you know y'all two out there with brooms clean up. This is the guys out in the shop, which means they believe in it, which means that that trickles through the whole entire organization. I got a chance to look at I don't what that was some type of process control cabinet. We're back in y'all's electrical room. Absolutely, that was a fire alarm, gas detection. Okay, so Patrick, the wiring in there was all straight and neat. <laughs> Right. You usually don't see that. Usually the tech engineers try and get the wires, and if the connection tests out properly, they don't care what it looks like. When you see electricians make sure the wires look good, I mean, that's just a sign of super quality. Yeah, and, and we, we feel that. Uh, as we mentioned during lunch, you know, we this is a family-owned company, and uh, we have a lot of tenure here. We take a lot of pride. We produce a very, very good product, and, and we think it starts with, you know, housekeeping is, is number one. How, how, how can you build a quality, you know, product for an end user if you're disarray in your shop? So, um, yeah, the, the shop personnel do an excellent job, but uh, from top to bottom, you know, it, it's not uncommon to see – uh, one of our executives, you know, helping around with housekeeping as well. You That's know? cool. Well, when so, it, and when it comes to fire suppression, you want quality because you want it to work every single time you turn it on. But we talked at lunch that these fire systems are something that companies just kind of forget. They maybe do their monthly inspections, monthly run into the pumps. But I was on a facility where we ran a, a fire pump and it, the station didn't work at all. It, it's been a long time issue that we've had within the industry. Unfortunately, fire protection, gas detection, suppression – doesn't make anybody any money. So, um, you know, these process... It keeps uh, you off the front page of the newspaper, but... Absolutely. (laughs) They tend to invest more money oftentimes in maintaining their production process than they do uh, fire service. And that, in essence, causes the issue. They're not properly maintained. Not everybody, but that's typically the leading candidate. I'm sure Dennis can speak to this and some of of his... uh, past experiences the attention that fire suppression gets it's it's definitely not the sexiest thing out there but it's vital to the life and safety of a plan a facility anything well i i think you see proof of that you know in the headlines as as mark said a couple of moments ago i think it was that uh, you know it takes just uh, one incident uh, that not only affects life and environment but uh, certainly also the the economic viability of that company itself you know we've all seen enough headlines to realize that that you can have an incident that occurs and it just keeps escalating uh you know i could go back over the years but it's it's one of the reasons for that uh, frankly is that uh frequently uh decisions were made and, and as uh, jason said just a few moments ago decisions were made that are focused on on production and so when times get tough like they are right now uh, a lot of times it's those maintenance budgets that, that get cut and if it's a new facility there's there's uh, often uh, cuts that take place in the in the safety and the fire protection areas uh, and of course that's that's one of the least payback but risk adverse things that you can do is is make sure that you've got the proper design proper installation uh, one of the things that uh, we do here i think extremely well and you saw that back there with those uh, enclosed equipment we talked earlier about uh, exposure and that's both onshore offshore of uh, equipment that's rarely used and you know if you think about it you're you're fire suppression systems you hope are never used right but but if you need them they bettered work and uh, you know we showed you an enclosed uh, system for foam back there a while ago and that's a good example of something that that helps 
minimize, you know, the effects of the environment on that equipment because, in fact, it is enclosed. Uh, in the old days, and I can speak to that, <laughs> I'm pretty old, but in the old days, you know, everything just set out in the elements. Of course, as I said earlier, they may test it perhaps once a year. <laughs> if something happens during that period of time because it's a, a passive failure, and that system doesn't work, then that's when they're in, in very serious trouble. So one of the things that we try to do is not only the quality material that we put into it, but also the fact that where we can, we encourage a client to enclose that so that the elements won't really affect it. So that's, that's again, one of the things that a company like Dooley Tackerberry brings to the table is that we have to be competitive, and we understand that. But at the same time, we're going to make sure that the things that we produce are quality, and we're going to try to advise a client so that when we do sell them a product, that that's something that's going to be ready to use when it's needed, whether it's a year from now or 10 years from now. So thinking about that, you know, that must sometimes put you on a position where you have somebody from supply chain or procurement telling you that, you're too expensive. And at the same time, you're having to try to explain to somebody in supply chain or procurement that it, we do need to use stainless instead of high carbon here because you're offshore, right? We want this thing to work. So it almost, I guess at times, is probably is a bit of a cultural disconnect between the guys that actually are watching the pennies and the guys that are running the business and they want to make sure that that, that equipment, when, it, when it's needed, works. Yeah, that's one of the real challenges. I'll tell you a quick story that's a, a true story. When I was with a major ENC, uh, we were doing a, a plant over, as a matter of fact, in Louisiana, and uh, I got this irate call. We had written specifications uh, from the engineering side, but uh, then when it went to procurement in this particular case, uh, I got a call from the field uh, from construction, and they were really irate because they had a, a, a container full of parts for a fire pump package. Now, you guys saw back there a while ago what a fire pump package looks like. You know, it's a, it's a should look like what should look like (laughs) well that one's not quite complete yet but the point is that all of those components have to be ul listed for the purpose intended and they all have to be listed for use with each other you know whether it's the driver the you know the diesel whether it's the uh, right angle driver in the case of a vertical turbine whatever it is all of those things have to be listed for use with each other and then they have to be put into a system that actually functions and that's why for example what you see back there is going to be a complete skid mounted package that you just set down you hook up the electrical hook up the water you're done well in this case what had happened was that procurement had decided that they could save money by buying it from somebody else rather than for example a dooley tackerberry by buying components so i got a call from the field from construction saying what in the world are we supposed to do with this? We've got this container full of parts, and we don't know what to do. And it took us literally, I'm not exaggerating, it took us six months to go through, sort out the parts. Some were listed for use with each other, some weren't. And then, in some cases, order the correct parts, but actually build that, that fire pump package like you see back there. When we could have set that thing and had it hooked up in a day or two, uh, it ended up taking us six months to correct what uh, had occurred because they did get the cheapest price to start with certainly in the end it cost us probably two to three times what it should have. oh i bet it did and dennis before we, we keep going on this road just for our audience in case they didn't hear your first interview which is really good you should go back and listen to it you have a little bit of experience in this industry you started when 
<laughs> it's kind of embarrassing. No, it's not. It's awesome. Uh, well, it, you know, I actually started back in about 1958. Uh, yeah. You know, we, we talked about that. Uh, as a matter of fact, when you said earlier, wondering about some pretty crazy things, I've got a really, <laughs> I think, funny story to tell you about that. But, yeah, I started in the oil field uh, up in the Texas Panhandle for Baker and Taylor drilling as a roughneck. And I did that for a number of years. And uh, finally, I decided I'd go back to school, sort of like Pat yep, talked yep. about, and, and get an education because uh, working as a roughneck was a pretty hard way to make a living back in those days. And you have a lot, I mean, a lot of experience with fire, fire suppression, fire systems. I, as a matter of fact, uh, went to work in... Uh, Sorry, six- you made it sound like a lot of the facilities worked on have burned down. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's funny you'd say that, but uh, uh, I, I worked for, I went to work for uh, Selenese Chemical Company in 1964, came to Houston uh, with that new plant at Bayport, and uh, in that role, uh, I was, in fact, uh, the, the fire chief and was uh, the communications officer for the SEMA organization, which is a channel industries mutual aid group. Did y'all catch that, that new plant in 1964? (laughs) 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 Obviously, Jason's quite a bit younger than I am. But uh, the point being that I did report to major fires that occurred on the ship channel, and my responsibility at the time was to uh, assemble the different... Each company, there were 55 companies that belonged to the SEMA organization at that time, and each company had to commit a certain resource, whether it's a fire team, an ambulance, a fire truck, a pumper, whatever. They had to commit that resource in case of an emergency at a a different plant, at a member plant. So my job was to maintain a register of all those resources, and then when an incident occurred, I would report to the scene, assess the situation, and then decide, for example, uh, what kind of equipment, what kind of personnel, et cetera, needed to be brought in and stage them and then disperse them you know, into the emergency situation. I also taught uh, field tactics at Texas A&M Fire School for five years. So uh, I've, I've had first Is that up in Teeks? Is that their facility in Teeks? Texas A&M's uh, Fire School? Yeah, yeah. So we, we did an interview with them about a few weeks ago. Yeah. Now, I, I, and I taught up there for five years in, in, in what's called field tactics, uh, which is basically out on, on the fire field. I, I was just crushed when they moved me to uh, J. Rudder Tower, where I had to go indoor because they were afraid I was getting old enough <laughs> that, that the heat would cause me to have a heart attack, which they just absolutely crushed me. But So I've had firsthand experience at fighting fires, and certainly you know, from a technical perspective, I've had the opportunity to, to study over the years, and actually have been burned twice. My first <laughs> experience with that, I spent uh, 28 days in the hospital uh, on my stomach. I'd always said if I ever got shot or cut or something, it'd be because I was running, and in fact, that's, <laughs> that was exactly what happened. Uh, I, I was running, and I found out real quickly that you can't really outrun a flame front, and so I, I, I was burned. My backside was burned. And uh, so I, I laid on this bed with this hole for your face underneath a tent because of one of the problems with, with burned victims is that back, and understand this was back in the 60s, but uh, was infection because you don't have the blood flow you know, to, to the burned areas. So I was under this sterilized tent on my stomach for, uh, for 28 days. That was my first time. 
Second time was in uh, 1974. I was involved in a propylene oxide fire. I got burned again, and so when I recovered from that, I went in and told my boss at Selenese, I said, I quit. He said, what, what, what do you mean you quit? And I said, I'm through. I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. I said, that's it. Tired of getting burned. <laughs> I, uh, and so at that, at that point was actually when I decided that, uh, that, you know, there had to be a better way of making a living than, than trying to fight industrial fires. Hey, you know, you brought up a good point I never thought of, but as a company, do y'all ever interface with either the firefighting teams of your clients or with the municipal fire department? We actually inter- uh, work with both groups. We work extensively with the downstream oil and gas, the major ERT teams. We support them in bunker gear sales, rescue equipment, fire hoses, nozzles, uh, just your general PPE as well as your uh, firefighting apparatus. Same goes for the municipalities. We have a first responder group that calls primarily on the state of Texas, Louisiana, and Arkansas. Got a pretty strong team there that uh, we also go in and help uh, facilitate writing specifications, make sure that everybody's current on NFPA code, they um, are using the latest and greatest products, whether it's a, a bunker gear, turnout gear, um, using the, the best flow, ergonomic nozzles, fire hose, that sort of thing. A lot of new standards and, you know, kind of being a government entity, uh, they're wanting to stay up to speed on latest and greatest. So a tremendous opportunity for us and also a, a business initiative that we're striving forward on. So let me ask this question because that makes me think of something else. Is, are you seeing technology change what y'all do? I mean, or is there different technologies coming in that are doing things better and faster that a few years ago was a very manual process? Strictly from a fire suppression, fire detection point of view. You know, Dennis could probably better answer this, but what I've seen uh, most recently is just the uh, the flow characteristics of nozzles, so to speak. Um, we're getting better patterns out of a handline nozzle for fighting a structural fire at lower pressures. You know, uh, traditionally you would need a minimum 100, 150 PSI to effectively fight a fire, and you're seeing some of these major manufacturers come out with products to where you can do, you can almost have a equally as quality firefighting stream with as little as 60 to 80 PSI. So that's one of the bigger innovations I've seen. And that's really been over the past maybe five years. Dennis, I'm sure you, you probably have some better stories than me on that. Uh, Having a little, a little longer in the tooth in this industry than I am. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Actually, the first thing that came to mind when, when uh, I was listening to Jason just a moment ago when you talk about the technology, in fact, the technology has improved. You know, what we've got today are, are uh, pieces of equipment that can deliver more water. Uh, we've got uh, better foams, for example, for suppression today. Uh, we've got uh, devices that, that have a much longer reach than what, uh, what we had. I, my mind went back uh, to a Macau Road incident, which was uh, an LPG uh, and I unfortunately saw the uh, the films of that, but there was a there was a fireman up on a on a, a snorkel uh, over the fire, and uh, it it had what's called a blevy, a boiling liquid expanding vapor explosion. Uh, it burned this guy horribly, and and he did he did die. I, I think that even though the the technology has improved some, uh, it's still that that human element that that fireman, and you know we see very frequently where. Uh, firemen are, are either injured or, or uh, fatally injured in, in some cases. There's, there's simply, in the case of firefighting, once an incident occurs, 
Uh, if they don't have fixed systems in place, that's that's why I'm a great believer in. Uh, I would send no one in to fight a fire if I had my way. But we do have the firefighters. They do have to respond. So you know, Weight of materials, I think that's something that I've thought about. Um, you know, whether it's uh, utilizing aluminums versus brass or polycarbonates versus, you know, steel components, you know, it, it reduces fatigue on a firefighter. The bunkers itself, the materials, you know, the, uh, the different manufacturers have come a long way with some of these proprietary fiber strands that uh, really reduces the, uh, the weight of a garment that they may wear. Uh, it may repel water better, so it's not absorbing that, which, as you both know, you know, can, can really weight you down and, and make you much hotter when you're in a, already a very, very bad situation. But Yeah, it's that, just interesting that, that even technology is something that's uh, impacting what y'all do, um, which then means that your clients out there may have more choices and not know which one's the right choice for their particular situation. And then if your client's relying on an EPC, where the EPC's core competency is not fire detection, fire suppression, the EPC is liable to make the wrong choice, which in the long-term scheme of things means that that project's either go over budget, go over time, whereas they just would have called y'all, you would have had it done. Well, we could have certainly helped them. That was what, when we first started this conversation, I was talking about the fact that, you know, ideally, uh, if a client comes up with a, a con- concept of what they would like to do, you know, one, two, five, ten years down the road, uh, if they can sit down with people who have that experience and that knowledge, they can help them make those right choices starting at the very beginning. And, and it's exactly what Jason just said, that, that there have been a lot of improvements. But if you really don't understand the hazard that you're dealing with, then you're not going to be able to make well-informed decisions. And, and very bluntly, I've put 29 years in with ENCs. And I can tell you absolutely that the vast majority of the engineers in those ENCs have not been out in the field and have never fought a fire. Uh, That's just the nature of the beast. So that's why, frankly, uh, people uh, who have that experience can be so valuable right up at the very beginning and not after the fact, if you please. That leads me into something I wanted to ask both of y'all. When you're dealing with a client at the feed stage and you're helping them design a fire suppression system, uh, what are the, some of the questions that they should be asking or that they're overlooking that you commonly see? I, I can tell you that uh, that the very first thing, and I, and I, I used the word earlier, uh, ethylene oxide or EO, uh, as a good example. Uh, if if you're dealing with a particular type of product, you know, we I know that for example, there's a, uh, a Dooley Tackerberry does a lot of work. Uh, in uh, hydrogen uh, sulfide, hydrogen fluoride suppression systems, things of that nature. When a client first starts to think about a process, it's not just actually the feed that goes into the process. It's not actually the final product that comes out, but it's also those intermediates. In other words, the things that happen during that process itself, that if there's a failure to contain, then they may have that problem, whether it's hydrogen sulfide, hydrogen fluoride, whatever it might be. They, they need to deal with people that understand a process well enough that they understand not only the, the initial feed that goes into it, but also whatever intermediates, in other words, pr- uh, chemicals that are produced during the process itself, uh, and then the end process, you know, whatever comes out at the end, in this case, ethylene oxide. It's, it's very rare that we're dealing with somebody that's a true black belt in the industry as it pertains to fire and gas. 
uh, we deal with some incredibly intelligent engineers throughout the industry, but oftentimes they are more focused on process, civil, structural, and, you know, the fire and gas piece is often a afterthought or, you know, an after the fact type thing that, you know, before an insurance carrier or before they can start it up, they require this equipment. So what we try to convey up front is, you know, both help them with the budget, you know, expectation on what, what they're going to need, um, you know, the capacities, the spacing, the routing, um, those things that if you get to a certain point in construction or design, there's just no room for them. And it, it just makes it much, much more cumbersome and, and costly, for lack of a better term. So that's probably one of the, the questions, depending on when we get involved with the project, what the competency level of the engineering or procurement, whomever that may be. You mentioned a, a question earlier regarding how do we combat dealing with pure com- procurement who's wanting to source a uh, a particular product that doesn't understand the corrosive atmosphere or materials of construction or or just those other items that we feel critical to a, a quality design the short answer is typically at that point in time it, it's too late unless we can get the air of an engineer um, so what we like to do is get involved as early as possible with both the client and the engineering firm that may be utilized help drive the spec utilize, leverage our technical competencies and, uh, you know, get get a friendly, you know, comprehensive specification written on the front end before it gets to procurement. Basically, yeah. don't let the project get halfway done and then think about it. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah so this is a good point um, to, to pause because we actually need to do our Red Wing Safety Tip of the Week. One of the things that, uh, that I, I recall uh, talking about uh, during the last interview that uh, just simply has not changed, and that's the use of PPE, or personal protective equipment. Being in the industry, as long as I've been in the industry, I've seen some incredible injuries occur. Um, and many, many times those injuries occurred because, for example, people weren't wearing their safety glasses. They had them pushed up because they were fogging and would have a horrible high injury. I've seen people, and I talked about this on the drill floor, where if a guy wasn't wearing steel-toed uh, boots and uh, you know there was a snag drill pipe and the drill pipe dropped on the guy's foot and he lost half of his foot, uh, so there's never a substitute. There, there's a reason that personal protective equipment is required, and there's never really any reason in the world why you shouldn't wear it and have it on you at all times because the simple fact is it can happen in a split second, and uh, you know the injury can be life-threatening or it can be something that, that you carry the scars with you for the rest of your life. Yep, and, and that goes for the home or the workplace. You know, we, I probably oftentimes take it for granted being in this industry for as long as I have. But um, there's not a time that I'm not mowing the grass or weed eating or doing something around the house to wear minimum safety glasses and earplugs. Um, and I tell you, the one time you forget them is the time that that accident may happen. I was very impressed. I was driving around the hill country last weekend, drove by a house, and there was an older gentleman doing yard work. Gloves, safety glasses, hard hat on while he was doing his work. I wanted to stop and and, and commend him for doing it, but I had my two year old in the car with me. I, I guarantee you, he worked in the oil and gas industry. I guarantee <laughs> you, no doubt, no doubt, yeah. construction or yeah. oil and gas. What a great, great safety tip. So now it's time for our Red Wing bag winner, um, uh, Dennis. 
where's the bag? Oh, it's on the floor. Anyway, y'all have seen the bag. <laughs> um, if uh, Jason, Dennis, y'all like to win one of these Red Wing offshore bags, it's really easy. You go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put your information in there. We draw one lucky winner a week. Audience, it's also open to you. Actually, really, it is open to you first. So um, go go do it. It's a great bag. It's in high demand. And Patrick, people keep offering me cash for one, and we don't Take do it. that. Take it. Take it. <laughs> <laughs> and so now it's time for our bag winner. And this week's winner, the Red Wing Offshore Bag, is Gukjin Jiang. He's a data analyst at Jackson Lewis PC. Congratulations, Gukjin. You are this week's winner of Red Wing's awesome offshore bag. So, man, this has been great. We're getting close to the point where we need to wind things down. So, Jason, if people want to learn, find out more about your company, where should they go? They, we do have a uh, website, dulytackaberry.com, um, that has uh, multiple resources there. We have uh, not only competency pages on what we excel at in the oil and gas, uh, fire and safety, but also a lot of uh, vendor links to where you can get uh, critical information regarding data sheets, MSDS, components of that nature. Yeah, and Patrick will stick a link in the show notes so people can just click on it. And I'm guessing, Jason, if people want to connect with you, they can just reach out on LinkedIn? Absolutely. Yeah, so we'll put the link to that as well. Uh, LinkedIn, speaking of LinkedIn, uh, we have our LinkedIn group, Oil and Gas Global Network. Just type in OGGN. That is the companion to this show, to Oil and Gas This Week, Oil and Gas Industry Leaders, and a whole bunch of new podcasts coming out. So go join if you're not already a member. It's where we're going to announce anything that we do special second. Want to know where we're going to announce stuff first, Patrick? We're going to announce it on our website. On our website. So if you want to learn about what we're doing next, it's not things that aren't being mentioned on the actual podcast, go to oilandgashsne.com. Give us your email address. We will never spam you, and you'll be the first to know. Then, if you like the show, can you do us a favor? Please, please, please leave us a review in iTunes. We we had some, but then I messed things up and accidentally erased them. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> um, so please, take two or three minutes. Uh, go give us a review in iTunes. It helps us immensely, uh, especially in the search engine rankings. And then share the show, right? If you found this valuable, share it with your friends, your coworkers, your family, your church group, whatever. Do that all-company all email thing. And then uh, we talked about the new show. We have oil and gas industry leaders coming out. Um, that'll hopefully OTC. La- launch at OTC, yeah. right? And then we're on the road. We're going to be at National Avarco Shrimp Boil the week of OTC with all three podcasts. And Patrick, you and I will be recording live in person from the Red Wing booth right smack in the middle of the floor of OTC Expo. That's right. And we're going to be announcing it on the, on the LinkedIn group, on the website. So we'll let you know when it's going to happen so you can come by and... You know, get a taste of the celebrity. And come listen to us. <laughs> and then uh, none of this would be possible without our sponsors, including our on-the-road sponsor, Lee Heck and Harrison. Lee Heck and Harrison is currently helping over 75% of the Fortune 500 oil and gas companies work with leadership and workforce transformation. So if you're in oil and gas and you have leadership or workforce issues, reach out to LHH. They're a fantastic company. Happy just talking to you, see if they can help you. Check them out at LHH.com. All right. And then if you'd like Patrick and I to come out to your conference, your school, your company event, your HSE meeting, whatever, uh, reach out to Patrick and I. We're happy to uh, share the details. Uh, so uh, is that about? Yeah, I think that's it, Mark. Yeah. So uh, once again, Jason and Dennis, thank you so much for your show. I mean, this was awesome. This is some really good content. I actually learned a lot. Um, so I found this valuable as well. I'm going to put a link to the show in the show notes to the restaurant we went to. That was just awesome. <laughs> that, it really was. And I promise you, we want to have y'all back on. Y'all will be back on probably for the third time uh, somewhere in the future. All right, Patrick, ready to get out of here? Yeah, let's do it. All right, folks, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. Y'all be safe out there. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com.
Houston, to London, to Dubai, and beyond. It's, it's sort of embarrassing, but I'll, I'll tell the story anyway. Uh, b- back in the, the late 50s, uh, as I said, I roughnecked uh, for Baker and Taylor, but sometimes the rig was down. And so when a rig was down, uh, there was another company, B&C Well Service, that, that I worked for. And uh, we had gone out on a well site and pulled the tubing, rod and tubing, out of a well. And we were running a sand baler. Now, I don't know if you know what a sand baler oh, is, is, but this, that's this device. Uh, it's very heavy that uh, I was on the end of the cable, and you run it down in a hole, and it scoops up sand. And then you bring it out you know, with this big baler. It's called a sand baler. You bring it out. You dump the sand, and you run it back down in the hole again. Well, you can imagine it at, say, 3,000, 4,000 feet. That's pretty boring for this teenager that's really not that interested because he his only task is to just take the baler over and dump the sand and then put it back in the hole, right? So I'm about half asleep, and uh, we, we've dropped it in, and I hear the, you know, the, the big Leroy diesel is is running so he's reeling it up and i noticed that all of a sudden the rpm start to pick up and it picks up a little bit it picks up a little bit more and i'm thinking what what's he doing and i look around and on the drum the cable is starting to get loose and he's got his leroy wide open and i'm looking at that drum with that cabling that that's looser and looser and i'm thinking what what's happening (laughs) about that time the guy, he's up on the rig, jumps off the rig, and he starts to crawl underneath the rig. And I'm looking at that thinking, what, what is going on? And about that time, <laughs> that baler comes out of the hole. We had a blowout. Oh. Uh, that baler comes out Under of the pressure. hole. Under uh, pressure. Much pressure. <laughs> so I, I'm standing there, rocket. and I'm watching this thing go up in the air and up in the air and up in the air, and I'm standing there looking at it, and all of a sudden it dawns on me, what goes up must come down. <laughs> That's why he's crawling underneath <laughs> the rig. So I obviously join him very quickly and <laughs> wait for that thing to come back down. Fortunately, it was a gas blowout, but it didn't ignite, and so we were able to close off the wellhead, and and you know it went no further than that. But I have to tell you that that was one of the stupidest feelings <laughs> to stand there looking up at the air. Watching and that's the, the third time I caught on fire. <laughs> <laughs> no. <This is> great. <laughs>